Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of a changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do To live a better life If times get tough, or even if they don't Dictate it I guess for a few more times during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, before I knock that down and maybe once every other week do a little bit of consulting up here. But we are rapidly approaching years in, and we are rapidly approaching uh, me making this show a hell of a lot better by dedicating myself 100% to its production and expansion. So uh, thank you guys for all the support you've given me in the past year and a half to make that a reality. I, I really appreciate you guys. Uh, today's show is a Monday show, so we're going to stick with the tradition that kind of just popped up over time of a listener feedback and question show. i got some great stuff today. i got a lot of stuff on land today. I didn't plan it that way. I didn't cherry pick them. They just really came in. And the questions that were uh, short enough that I could read them and condense them into a question um, got picked. And that's one thing I can advise you guys to do. If you want your question on the air, please get your question to me in the first three to four sentences with enough information for me to make an intelligent decision about whether I'm going to put the question on the air or not. Three to four sentences. Anything more, and it's not going to happen on a Monday morning because I get up and get these show notes ready on a Monday morning. And there's even one in here I kind of cheated for you and read through your thing and got you on because it was interesting enough to me to do it. But the same person asked me a second question, and you wrote me a book. If you write me a book, I'm not going to be able to condense this thing down into a question. You condense it down into a question. And then if you want to give me a book after it, say further details are below, and I'll go down there and dig out whatever I need. But you guys have sent me these books for questions. Don't be surprised when you don't hear them on the air. And I'm not being mean or nothing. I'm just telling you, that's, that's just the way it is. I have to get quick here. This is this is uh, something i got to be able to spit out, give out, give out your point. If you can't make your point in two to three sentences, how can I? All right, so before we do that, though, let's uh, go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. Check out Ready Made Resources. Everything you can possibly imagine for prepper needs. Really a very cool website. A great selection of stuff and some very unique things. I mean, from some pretty cool solar stuff to uh, like they have this little solar powered fire starters like a, uh, a mirror with a little where you put a piece of tinder in front of it it's just awesome little thing and I've not really seen it in many other places so check those guys out uh, make sure you get their solar catalog as well next um, check out MERS-radio.com there's a hyphen in there again M-U-R-S-radio.com um, they have some really cool stuff and it's kind of a small product line he guy has you know base stations, handhelds, uh, security sensors, and, and one little ha- uh, ham unit that also will work on the MERS frequencies. And, and what I like about that is this guy knows his equipment cold. If you need any help and you give him a call or send him an email because you're trying to accomplish something, he's going to be able to tell you exactly how to take care of it. He's been very specialized in dealing with just that equipment, and uh, that's a good reason to do business with a small businessman. So check out his stuff. I have his equipment set up around my house, and uh, it might be a bit overkill for suburbia, maybe. I don't know. I kind of like it. Um, if nothing else, I know when the dog's trying to get out of the gate, and uh, that, that's been helpful in not letting our new dog escape. But uh, it is really a great thing to be able to take some level of security and combine it with a secondary communication uh, technology. So check out his stuff. Get involved with our forum. Uh, we'll leave it at that today. Uh, check out our store, t-shirts, challenge coins, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and get on our YouTube channel. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. I uh, didn't video this weekend, but you know we've got Christmas coming up and a big lull in there uh, between Christmas and New Year's. I'm going to be shooting a ton of video. So you'll want to know about the videos when they come out. So become a subscriber to our YouTube channel. And last but not least, if you think this show's worth more than 10 cents or 20 cents an episode, consider joining the MSB, which is the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members and over $150 worth of value on day one for your contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. And with that, let's go ahead and start taking some questions. Um, the first one's not really a question. It's a report in from the uh, Great White Northeast. Chris reports from the Great White Northeast, uh, particularly West Virginia, and he says that in the state of West Virginia alone, more than 150,000 uh, people are without power right now. 
from the power going out. And in some, you know, the rural counties and whatever, the entire counties basically are without power. 150,000 may not sound like a lot if you live in Philadelphia or Dallas-Fort Worth or Houston or Atlanta or Los Angeles. But 150,000 people in West Virginia is a pretty significant portion of that state's population, especially if we leave out Charleston and we just look at the rest of the state. That's, that's a pretty high number, a pretty high percentage. Well, uh, Chris said he was lucky. His lights flickered a few times, but he's one of the people that kept power on, and so he's going to be okay. But there are people right now that don't have power that they're not expecting to get their lights back till around Christmas. So they're going to go a week without power, just like the great ice storm last year. Uh, this blizzard this year has, has caused that. And think about the fact this was snow, not ice. If this had a good, healthy dose of ice with it, there'd be millions of people without power right now, without any type of uh, exaggeration whatsoever. But this was the interesting thing. You know, in the prepper community, we're big on saving and storing up food. And that's one of the things we fear disappearing off the shelves. Well, Chris decided to go out to Walmart in his local community to pick up some uh, food for, for the Christmas time thing. You know, I guess maybe having friends or family over or whatever, wanted a couple extra treats or something for the table. So he goes to Walmart, and you know what? Food, no problem. You can have all the food you want. Food is everywhere. You know what was cleaned out? Camping section of the sporting goods store. He said every portable stove gone. Every can of fuel for portable stoves gone. Every little, you know, one pound can of propane gone. Sleeping bags gone. Long johns almost gone. Gloves gone. Every bit of cold weather gear that you can think of to take care of yourself when it's cold out gone. 150,000 people without power. And every piece of cold weather gear in a local Walmart is gone. What does that tell us? What do we learn from that? What if it wasn't 150,000 people without power? What if it was 2 or 3 million in a, in a you know fairly large regional area without power? How much would there be left for, for the people that weren't prepared in advance? See, these little things that happen that are, you know, we, I won't call this a disaster. I really won't. This is not a disaster. This is an annoyance. This is an inconvenience. And even for most of the people that will go a week without power, uh, you're going to get through. They have enough shelter in their home that they're going to survive. And uh, they might be miserable and they might be cold and they might wish the heck it didn't happen. And I really fear for maybe some of the older people and things like that that aren't really, you know, equipped to take care of themselves well anymore. But other than that type of situation, this is going to be an annoyance and maybe a wake-up call. But that's why we get these things. These are like fire drills, except unlike the stupid fire drills that they do in your workplace or your school, where they have everybody stand 15 feet away from the building after they got out of it and might explode, um, this is real world. And this is there's real feedback and real consequences to not being prepared. Now, those consequences might be 48 to 72 hours shivering and blowing on your hands and wishing the heck you had done something. Uh, it might be having to ration the little bit of uh, auxiliary heat that you have, but we're learning something here today by looking at this, and we learned something last time by looking at this as a constable flies by me with the lights and sirens blaring, and hopefully people are beginning to take notice of the winter weather stuff, because it is only a matter of time before we have something with the amount of snow that this storm happened to have, and maybe some ice behind it like the ice storm of last year. You get those as a one-two whammy and start putting out power while everything's under two or three feet of snow, and you've really got a problem. And remember, that big ice storm last year, the saving grace was, even though the ice storm, and folks, you got to really think about this, that ice storm at one time was touching El Paso, Texas, and Boston, Massachusetts at the same time. It was one pink stripe all the way in between. But the saving grace is it was a very narrow strip, extremely narrow, probably less than 50 miles wide at its widest point. So as it moved through, it only spent so much time in one area, and it was rather fast moving. If that ice storm had been widespread it, uh, in, in, in the direction of its movement instead of against the direction of its movement, there's no telling what kind of catastrophe that thing would have been. And it caused a lot of grief last year for a lot of people. Like I said, on the, on the forum, Kentucky Farmer posted a kind of a diary of what that week was like, and he got through it pretty good, but man, you, gotta, you, you read what he did to get through it pretty good, and you read how prepared he was, and you understand how miserable uh, that could have been, in fact, dangerous if he hadn't been prepared, and how it was miserable and dangerous for 
were some people that weren't prepared and how they did what they could to help those around them. But, you know, one family can only do so much in a, in a rural environment. So, folks, just pay attention to what's going on up here. we got a lot of forum chatter about the storm. I think most people are actually enjoying it. It's a, pre, a pre-Christmas snowfall. Uh, it could create some uh, hindrances and annoyances. But where it fell, most people are prepared to deal with it. And uh, But we do learn things just by taking a trip to the grocery store. And if you want to really learn something, come to North Texas when we're having an inch of snow. And go to Kroger's and, and uh, Albertsons and all the grocery stores uh, a couple hours before an inch of snow is about to fall. And you will see the food stripped off the shelves because these people freak out and they don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do over an inch of snow. And all they can remember is the 1980s when a blue northern came in and they got a real snowfall here for once. And that's it's par- you know, paranoid these people ever since. We're going to get a half inch of ice that's going to be gone by midday the next day and, and they freak out. There's no milk and no bread. Um, I, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, people that live in the area can tell you it happens every single time. And uh, it's humorous to me because I realize the uh, one of the... Uh, just the, the, the lack of preparedness in general that most people have, but that's not really humorous. What's humorous to me is I realize how minimal any type of winter weather really is in North Texas, how we're talking a two-day maximum real uh, problem, and if there's anything these people should be worried about, it's being cold, not feeding themselves. Uh, and the ice around here with, with power outages and things, that could be a big problem, but that's never what they're concerned with. They're worried about milk and bread. That tells us a lot. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Jason sent in a question and says, uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on HSAs? Now, someone out there that listens to my show that's not really paying attention right now just went, oh, he didn't ask that, did he? And, and the way they think I said is HOA. Like homeowners associates, oh, Jack's going to go on a tangent now. No, no, no. HSA, or Health Savings Account, is what Jason's asking about. And Jason sent me a book, but he put his question at the top of the book, so his question got on the air. And, and when I went into Jason's book enough to understand that basically he's been unemployed, he's had COBRA benefits run out, and he's taken up an HSA as an option instead of trying to continue with COBRA uh, at like $1,200 a month because he can't afford health insurance at that price. And as he's learned about this thing, he's thinking this HSA thing is uh, pretty daggone cool. Uh, you know, you, you put your money in there, and uh, at the end of the year, if you don't use any of it, it stays in there and it rolls into the next year. And, you know, you get to a point where if you're in retirement, all the money's yours. You can get at that money in different ways. You can leave it as a fund to pay for medical uh, needs and leave it to your children or your grandchildren. And you control your own money, and you get to decide when it gets spent on medical needs and when it doesn't. And it seems pretty cool. And what do I think of them? I think they're one of the greatest things ever created. I think if they were placed side by side with the only type of health insurance that I think should even be legal in this in this country, which is catastrophic. So you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to be on a respirator for a week or whatever, and you're going to end up with a $75,000 bill. You have insurance that covers that type of event. You have a heart bypass surgery. You were in a car accident and they have to replace your spleen or take it out or, you know, you end up needing a new liver because it was damaged through something. That type of stuff. And that's the only thing we should be insuring is that really expensive stuff. And if we took that, we'd end up with a very low premium for catastrophic. And then if we taught people to set up a health savings account, start when you're very young, 18 years of age, and make a reasonable contribution to that. I don't know, let's say we weren't pissing away money on Medicare and Medicaid, and we took the taxes that are taken from people to provide those programs and said, here's the money back, but put this money in an HSA and put more money in there too, right? If we did that, by the time a person was 25, generally in good health at 25, don't have a lot of problems, they have a pretty good stockpile built up before they're even into the point where they're starting to deal with having children and things like that. They have the catastrophic over the top of it as an umbrella to protect them from the major catastrophe so that we don't get the entire HSA wiped out overnight. See, that's the way to make this thing work. It's an HSA on one side and a catastrophic umbrella policy on the other with a high deductible because I pull the HSA in to cover the deductible, but then I'm not going to go bankrupt or bankrupt my HSA 
from one major catastrophic incident. I think if we did that, we really have something. Now, Jason wants to know why aren't they more popular? Because the government doesn't want you in control of your health insurance. It doesn't want you in control of your health care. It doesn't want your relationship to be with your doctor or with your hospital. It wants to keep patting the wallets of the pharmaceutical companies, patting the wallets of the insurance companies, and controlling your life. And if you have any doubts about that, look at the current health care bill. I told you guys months ago, we weren't going to stop this thing. They were going to give us some kind of Frankenstein monster version of what they started out with. It's going to be the worst of everything. So yeah, they took the public option out. Now they say you have to buy from a private health insurance company. But if you don't buy it, you're going to get fined. If you don't pay the fine, you go to jail. So everybody's forced to purchase health insurance, just like you're forced to purchase car insurance, except you only have to purchase car insurance if you choose to drive a car on public streets. Well, you're going to be forced to buy health insurance if you live in the mountain, a mountain in the middle of Montana, away from everybody. It won't matter. If you're a citizen in this country, they can track you with that number. You're going to have to buy health insurance. And those of you that think I want a little full hat here at the end, no, no. Go look at the bill. Go look at what they're doing. Right now, the, the, you know, there's a few Republicans filibustering this thing. But it looks like the Democrats have their cloture vote, and they're going to vote today on a cloture vote to, to end this thing and go to a vote on the 24th, or Christmas Eve. And they're going to pass this thing, and they're going to throw it back over to the House. We don't know how it's going to end up over there. But all this bill does, and all the, all the incarnations of all these bills have always done, is take away the doctor-patient relationship. To put somebody in between that relationship that tells the doctor what they can and cannot do and tells the patient what they can and cannot have. That's all health insurance has brought to us. It has not saved lives. It has not helped people. It has destroyed what we should be the best medical system in the world. And it's burdening it down. The only reason we still are is because everybody else has screwed theirs up worse. When people tell you, oh, you're better off in Costa Rica than the United States for health care, yeah, I don't see anybody getting their ass on a plane and flying to Costa Rica to get health care taken care of. I don't see anybody crossing the border to Mexico to get health care taken care of unless it's for a treatment that's not legal in the United States. Last-ditch efforts, things like that. Or some guy that wants HGH, right? He can't get it. I see that. But for, you know, oh, I need heart surgery. I'm going to run off to Mexico. I'm going to run to Canada. It ain't happening. But I see people coming from Mexico and Canada here. I see people flying in from, from the Middle East, sheiks, with enough money to go anywhere in the world when they need something done. And they want the best. They come here. That's because everybody else has screwed it up worse. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to be like everybody else. So HSAs, absolutely. Look for them to be completely destroyed by what's happening now, though. Just watch them be eliminated completely. It's ridiculous. It should be set up in every uh, major company and every small business in America should be offering it to their employees as, a, as, a, as a, an option. Um, and they should be offering it in conjunction with either employer-provided or employee-purchased catastrophic umbrella over the top. You put those together, and you can take care of just about anything that comes your way. And all these people that are sitting here going, but the old people are on their maintenance medications. And it's, you know what, a lot of times, a lot of times those old people, uh, now, I agree, we have to take care of them. But a lot of times, they got on 15 different pills. They cost them $1,000 or more a month to take those 15 different pills. Because they went through modern medicine for their entire lives. So they, every time the doctor said, take this drug, take this drug, take this drug, take this drug, they just took the drugs. They just took whatever they were told to take. Oh, you have high blood pressure. Uh, it's like 10 points high. Not really a big deal. Might just be normal for you, honestly. But let's put you on high blood pressure medication. And 15 years of that, we have side effects. Oh, we have to medicate those. Well, this new drug and this, this, this chain reaction. But this doesn't come from a very tight relationship between a patient and a doctor. Where the patient can stop and ask the doctor, why are we doing this? How much is this going to cost? What are my alternatives? No. No, this comes from institutionalized medicine, rubber stamp, in and out, 15 minutes. That's what health insurance brought us. So there's a long answer to a long question, honestly. Um, but. That's what I think, and that's how I think they would work best. And I hate to say it, but I think they're going to have a death nail rung on them uh, by the very early part of next year. And uh, this is uh, a sad day for America, so let's look at something different so I don't get too depressed. 
Tim's from my my part of the the, the world. Tim lives here in the North Texas area somewhere, and he's looking at buying some land. And the land's been on the market for a long time. That's the first clue, Tim, that you're on the right track with the way you're thinking here. And uh, it's about a hundred and. 30 acres. I can't really see my notes now because the sun's hitting me in the eye, but that's 125 acres. Okay, 125 acres. The guy was selling it for $3,500 an acre. Now, um, that seems a bit high based on the way the land was described to me. It's uh, out of rural. I think it's west of, of the Metroplex somewhere. So that's kind of scrub oak and stuff. Uh, it doesn't say. I didn't hear anything about a bunch of water being on it anywhere um, or a bunch of power or anything like that. It sounds like it's pretty much raw land. Uh, typical kind of moving toward, not really West Texas, but moving toward West Texas ranch land. Um, you can find land out there still for $1,000, dollars an acre relatively easily. It, it's there. You can find it if you look hard enough for it. Well, this guy didn't he didn't want to deal, and he didn't want to break the parcel down either. And, and uh, you know, what Tim said is, uh, I don't need 125 acres. I'm thinking more along the line of 60 acres. So the guy finally agreed to consider breaking the parcel down to 60 acres, and uh, but he won't budge on price. Tim decided what the hell. He was getting ready to put an offer in at $2,500 an acre, and uh, then held back and just started thinking about, you know, is this right, and who's being unreasonable here with unwilling, you know, unwilling to budge on price? Is it me, or is it the seller? Okay, well, here's what you need to do, Tim. This is the very first thing that you need to do. The problem both of you have is you've assigned a value to the land based on your, your mental state right now, and how you feel about the land, and emotionally, how you, how you feel that the land, you know, is or is not appropriate for your needs. And he looks at it as this big, beautiful piece of land he owns that he's given up. And that must be worth at least this much money. And if i got that much money, I'll, I'll get rid of it. And if I don't get that much money, hell, I'll just keep it. And you look at it and go, well, here's what I think I could turn it into. And based on that, I feel it's worth X. You both need a dose of reality. So the first thing that needs to be done can be done by any real estate agent in the area. Of course, once you get them involved, they're going to want a commission on it. But you might be able to say, look, I need you to do this for me. I'll give you 500 bucks because you know what you're doing, cash. as a service instead of you know getting involved in this listing. This is a direct seller to buyer thing. Um, and if it doesn't work out, maybe I'll put you to work trying to find another piece of land for me that makes sense. But what I need done is a comparable sale analysis, a comparable sale analysis. In other words, you need to determine what tracts of property that are just like that track have sold for in the area in the past year. That is the market value of the property. How you feel about the property, how he feels about the property, doesn't mean a damn thing. And especially, here's the thing, if you're going to finance the purchase, if you're not going to pay the man cash, then before any lender is going to lend you money to buy this land, which is a lot harder to do, by the way, than buying uh, a house with with with, uh, with a loan. It's, it's going to be a more difficult thing to get the financing. I'm not saying you can't get it done. You can, but they're going to be tight on it, especially now. The first thing they're going to do is a market analysis. They're going to say, okay, this property has a market rate of X. We'll finance uh, 80% of that market value and not a penny more. Or they'll say, we'll finance 90% of the market value and not a penny more, depending on you and your credit and how much you bring to the table and what your collateral is and all that other stuff. But whatever number they give you that they're willing to, to put in as financing is going to be based directly upon the market value of the property. So let's just say, let's make it a nice round number and let's say, uh, it had nothing to do with your numbers, but it's that you're making a purchase for $100,000 for some segment of a piece of property. Let's say the bank comes in and says, we think that that property is worth $80,000, okay? And we'll finance 90% with your credit. You need 10% down to buy this property at $90,000. So you need $9,000 cash to make the purchase at this point. The seller won't come off the $100,000. You can't do it. Money's not there. Your only option would be to go get another $10,000 in cash and cover the spread and bring that to the closing, leaving the bank only with a risk of 
you know, $89,000 or $91,000, because that's the risk they're willing, or uh, what is it, it would be $81,000 now. That's what the bank's willing to risk. Based on the market value, they're willing to risk 90% of the market value based on who you are as an individual. That's how that deal's made. So before anybody talks about crap about an offer this or payment that or, or anything else or, you know, so-and-so's farm this, doesn't matter. Comparable market analysis, and that's, I don't care if you're buying a two-bedroom garden home in the middle of the city or a thousand acres out in the middle of the country, you need a comparable analysis for what property is actually sold for consistently in the area. At least three properties that are in some way comparable to the property that you're looking at purchasing. And no bank anywhere will touch the loan without that. And that's why you better be really leery of people that are saying, we'll do owner financing. I'll finance the note to you. Well, that might be because it's a good deal for him and he sees this as an investment. He knows it'll be easier to sell. And if that's the case, great. But it might be because he knows he's way over the market value and he's looking for somebody to come in and he can do deal, you know, a deal on a spit and handshake and one, uh, one little piece of paper you sign. And if you get in harm's way, it doesn't cost him anything. He just repossesses the property. And he keeps all your money and you get nothing. And that's, that's the way those deals work. So, again, even if it's that kind of deal, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying, hey, you know what? Get a comparable market analysis done. Get a good real estate agent to do it for you. And if you don't want them involved in the sale, say, look, I'll pay you, you know, $300, $500, something like that to do it. But most of them are sitting around not doing a damn thing right now anyway. And if that deal doesn't work for you, then say, hey, look, I appreciate you doing that for me. Now you know exactly what I'm looking for. We have a relationship. See if you could find me something. So that's how I'd handle that. Next question that comes in, I can't give you a name because the person asked the question didn't give me a name. But they asked an interesting question. They said they've never heard anybody talk about what to do about this. So it's great. We're uh, we're out here putting all these solar systems in, right, windmill systems, and every way we can to create alternative energy for ourselves. And uh, that way, if uh, the shit hits the fan, we keep the lights on and we have some level of energy production. Well, this person wants to know, well, that's great. But if the supply chains are down, there's no more gas, there's no more oil, transportation lines are cut off, big time, major, global, catastrophic, shit hits the fan. What about when them batteries run out? Good question, sort of. New batteries designed for use for home power uh, generation systems have a lifespan of about 20 years. Now, if we're in a shit hit the fan that lasts greater than 20 years, we've got a lot of really big problems. Um, additionally, the skill of reconditioning batteries can be learned by anybody that wants to do it. And I'll also tell you this. If the streets end up gridlocked with cars shut down in the in a, you know, case of a real global catastrophe, and uh, there's cars laying around everywhere, no gasoline in them, plenty of batteries out there to be harvested. And you might call that stealing, but after they've been laying there for 30, 60, 90, or more days, um, it's going to happen, and people are going to go out and start harvesting them. And the, the ones you're bartering a box of 22 ammunition for probably will have gotten there that way. So we're talking about worst-case scenario here, honestly. Um, <clears throat> We're looking at a, a what you call a high-impact, low-probability event that would create something like this. But in the case where 20 years later things aren't put back together, uh, let's say 10 years later things aren't put back together, your batteries have reached their half-life when the shit hits the fan. Um, we got bigger problems than what we're going to do about a new battery if we're into that level of catastrophe. And honestly, if we're in that level of catastrophe, there's probably going to be a lot of things laying around out there that can be harvested it. Why do these trucks shadow me? It's like they like me. They, they like they're in Star Trek, matching course and speed or something. Anyway, folks, that, that's how I feel about that. I, it's not my biggest concern. Um, having more batteries in your battery bank than you absolutely need is a good idea. More batteries is always better. Another panel is always better. Another wind generation piece of equipment always better. Absolutely. Um, home building your equipment, you will not get as good a result in most instances as far as efficiency, capacity, and things like that. But what you will have is an intimate knowledge of your system, and it will allow you, when a shit hit the fan, to use harvested components, even if they're harvested from your own vehicles. I mean, let's be honest. If once you run out of fuel, if your vehicle's not going anywhere, your battery's better off in your battery bank, you know, than it is in your vehicle just sitting there. So that's that's my answer there. He also said, is there a way to store batteries long-term without them going bad? And yeah, no. 
The big thing you never want to do with, you know, your big car batteries, golf car batteries, and things like that, is let them sit flat on the ground or flat on concrete. They'll actually discharge right through the case into the ground. Uh, they need to be set up on wood, and the wood should have, like, maybe, like, if you were stacking firewood, you put two pieces of wood down and then a piece of wood across, and it creates an air gap under there. That's really kind of one of the most important things. You don't want them in too high a temperature, and they're still going to discharge on you. Uh, but they won't necessarily go bad. They'll still be able to take a charge. But leave any battery sitting around long enough without charging and decharging it, and it eventually is just it won't take a charge anymore. It'll lead at minimum to be re, uh, reconditioned, and in many instances you won't even be able to do that. So, uh, again, not the biggest worry that I have out there. Good thing to be thinking about, but... Again, if we have a couple hundred million vehicles laying around doing nothing uh, in that bad of a situation for 10 years or more, there will be plenty of batteries out there to, uh, to piece together systems with. Okay, someone I can only name as Gunslinger, because that's the only name I have with this, probably a form handle, um, says he's looking at buying two acres of land. Told you a lot of land questions today. Up in the uh, the high desert region of someplace. So I'm thinking New Mexico, Utah, uh, Arizona, maybe even Colorado, somewhere like that, that type of environment. Because uh, he didn't say where, but high desert. And uh, likes the property, likes the price. The issue is it's a nice square piece of property, which is good for, you know, building on and laying out and doing some interesting things with. But three sides of the property, and I guess the fourth side's probably a road, three sides of the property are bordered by other landowners. And it sounds like three different other landowners, or maybe, I don't know, one, I don't know. But no one's built yet. So it's like this big open space in the middle of the desert, and if you built your house there, you'd be kind of like, wow, I'm all alone. Even though you only own two acres, you got all this space around you. But his concern is, you know, would you buy that property and build on it with the concept that these other people may come and build on it? I certainly think I would factor it into the price that I'd be willing to pay for the property. I'd actually be less concerned if they had already built, because then I would have a known quantity. I would know where they position their houses on their property. I mean, you would hope hope that if you have a property, you know, the guy to your left wouldn't build his house all the way to the left edge of his property. Um, we have five-acre to ten-acre parcels in my community up in Arkansas, and pretty much everybody built their house all the way to the left edge of their property, which means as you go up the road, it's the maximum distance to the next house to keep everything spaced out. I don't think anybody required that. It was just kind of like the first guy did it, and the next one looked at it and said, huh, I'll do that too. You know, and, and as that progressed, it's kind of each piece was built out that way. Uh, and that keeps, even though there's a, you know, a fair little mini population there, it keeps everybody kind of spaced out and you just feel better that way. So you'd hope that the guy, you know, your guy on your back wouldn't build right against your back line and on your left right against the left line and right, right line, and all of a sudden you feel like you're closed in even though you're out in the middle of nowhere. So that would be a concern, but I, I, I concern could be mitigated. The thing is, if people were already living there, you could go talk to them, see what they're like, know what they're like. Like, um, and, and that would be a, a safer bet. But I wouldn't write the property off if you really like it and the price is right. Again, I would factor it into the, the price you're going to pay. I would also talk to the other people that own the land and say, what are your intentions? Are you just holding it? Is it a kind of a retreat? Is it a hand-me-down from, you know, are you going to build on it anytime soon? Are you, are you interested in selling it? You know, which would you at least make a deal with me if you ever are going to sell it, that you let me know you're going to sell it before you put it on the open market. And if I'm willing to pay you what you want for it, you know, I'll take it off your hands. That type of thing. Reach out and find those other people first. If, if, they're, if they're agreeable people, they seem like nice people, if they're like, I'm not going to build there anytime soon, you know, I mean, you might want to just go ahead and go, go through with it. But I would at least get a little bit more of a known quantity out of that. Who owns that land? How long, is, how long have they owned it? You can find all this out at the tax office. If you find out that one guy owns all three pieces and he's owned it for 100 years, you might end up finding out he's the guy you're buying it from. You know, I mean, is it turning into a development? you got to find these things out. Once you know, then you can make an informed decision. So it's not whether I would buy it or not. It's once you get more information that you seem to need, as far as I'm concerned, yes, what was one man's opinion? My opinion is you don't have enough information to make a decision yet. The information you need to make the decision and feel good about it 
who owns those other three parcels, how long have they owned those three parcels, and some reach out in contact with them to find out their intentions, that they have any intention of building or selling. If they would sell, would they be willing to put the property in front of you for sale before they put it on the open market? Get an answer to all of those, and you'll find your own answer. So there's one man's opinion. Hopefully that helps you and help, help others that come into similar situations. Continuing with the land theme, Bob asked me a question. Bob wants to know if it's possible to buy land with an IRA without a penalty and make the land purchase part of your retirement. Yes, it is. No, it's not as simple as some people would have you believe. To actually do the deal is pretty easy if you have the funds. You're not going to be able to mortgage. You have to put the money that you have to have the money to buy the land in in the IRA or in a 401k that you're going to roll somewhere. First step is to set up a brand new IRA. You can't use your conventional IRA to do this. You need what's called a real estate IRA. So you set that up, put a couple hundred bucks in it or something to get it going, and then roll the other IRA into it, whatever amount of money you need to do the deal, and maybe a little bit of extra for some property maintenance that's allowable as a distribution as well. Then you purchase the property. Here's the problem. You don't own the property. The IRA owns the property. Now, the good news is if you put some funding in there, things like taxes on the property, you can also pay out of the IRA because it's part of the maintenance. Just like you pay a fee for your mutual funds, you know, if you have a loaded fund with an advisory fee attached to it, just like that gets paid by the IRA, your taxes can be paid by the IRA. Sounded pretty good, huh? Right? You can get that money now. Uh, it's sitting in there tax deferred. And uh, if you convert it to property, then the only thing you have to do is pay the distribution on the value of the property when it comes out of the other end. Right? Here's the problem. You can't use it as property that you're going to live on or live in while you're holding it in the IRA. Before you can take up residence there, you have to reach retirement age and take it as a distribution. Or if you take it as an early distribution, you have to pay the penalties on it. And now it's not in cash where you can pay the penalty out of the cash. You have to come up with the cash to pay the penalties on it. So that's really kind of a, a big problem there for a lot of people with doing this. They don't make it easy. If they did, by the time you were 40 years old and you had you know $100,000 in your IRA or more, um, Get off the phone, honey. Get off the phone and get off my ass. Anyway, uh, by the time you had enough money to buy a house in an IRA, everybody would do it. You just go pay for your your house. You keep throwing money back into a new IRA. You'd have it just sitting there already paid for, and it would be a great way to do things. A, a real estate IRA is designed for real estate to be an investment. Now, it could be a buy-and-hold strategy. I'll buy the land today. I'm not retiring for 20 years. It'll be there 20 years from now. Then I'll build on it, and that way I can buy property today with the money I already have, where if I wait until retirement, all the money I keep throwing in there is going to be needed to be able to buy the property then. So I'm buying today and holding for tomorrow. That's a straight-up investment strategy. Another way that it can be done is you buy a property with a home on it and rent the home, and all of the profit from the rental goes back into the IRA. That's a really cool way to do things. So another thing you could do is could this land be farmed? Could you lease it to a farm? I don't know what the land's like. Right? I have no idea what you're looking to buy, but if it's a big plot of rural land that's currently a farm, could you buy it? lease the farming rights to somebody and offset some of the cost by shoving money back into the IRA in a tax-deferred status might be a really creative solution. So you can do it. The only problem is you can't do it and live there. Don't try to cheat the system. They will get you. Um, it already occurred to me that I could set up my IRA and uh, then rent the property to myself for a very low cost. And I found a story somewhere. I'll see if I can look it up for you guys, where a guy did that and they got him and they sent him to jail for it, for uh, financial fraud or something like that. Uh, so that one doesn't work. Don't try that. Okay, the last one I have today is kind of a deep topic, and it's not really a prepper topic, but when I read it, I thought it was something that we should probably discuss based on some conversations I've had by email with a few people lately about war, about libertarianism, and about the anti-war component of libertarianism. Libertarians are generally not, so to speak, anti-war. They might say they are, but that's not what they really mean. They're anti-aggression. Right? They're anti-force. Um, 
So if you come after me and I use force to resist you, that's an, that's a, an acceptable use of force. If I want you to do something, so I use my force to impose my will on you, that's an unacceptable um, use of force. That's the, that's the internal libertarian component. Now, what she said to me is, there's an inconsistency with my message. Now, and again, if I didn't see your name, Kelly, this person says this. Kelly says, I've said on numerous occasions, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence do not apply to Americans. I get really angry when I say this because it gets perverted when people say, I have, you know, as an American, I have my constitutional rights. And, you know, when you have right-wing and left-wing people talking about, but this is America. We don't care about those people. We have our rights here. There's a truth component there, but there's a, the, the, the falsehood is that they were written to apply to Americans only. They were written to apply to the entire world. They were written to apply to humans. And she says she can't agree with me more when I say that. But then I turn around and say we should pack up all our military adventures around the world, kind of fold up our tents, come back here to America, and stop sticking our nose into everybody else's business. Now, how can we say that... Our Constitution and Declaration of Independence apply to the whole world if we're not willing to go out there and help people have those same freedoms and liberties. Well, they don't have those same freedoms and liberties in Canada. I can't have the right to uh, to own a, uh, a gun in Canada, not in the way I can in America. We, we haven't upheld the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution in Canada, so should we invade Canada? Mexico, it's even more difficult. Should we invade Mexico? U.K., oh my God. You know, it's almost impossible to own a gun in the U.K. So since the Second Amendment is in conflict with that, I mean, I know some of you guys are going to write me, you a shotgun, a twenty-two, and I, I know, but it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not consistent with the, the right that we see in America to gun ownership. And I'm trying to answer a question here. So, so should we go invade London and force this on them? So if, if we're not going to do it for one tenant of the Constitution, should we do it for any? If we're going to say that, oh, well, you know, we're going to go out and impose our force on any nation that doesn't affer to their people the rights that we see as innate human rights, right to self-defense, right to free speech, so we're going to invade Saudi Arabia next, right? Because, you know, women have to wear a burqa there when they're out in public. What? They say things that they think that they're not allowed to by their men. They're allowed to be beaten. That's not quite constitutional, is it? Right? But does that mean that we impose our force on another nation? See, the founders were brilliant. And they understood this. And she said, I understand that your anti-war concepts are, you know, mainstream libertarianism. That's the way libertarians think. But don't you think that if we were out there, and she sent me some them video, and I haven't watched it yet, to be fair, but it's about the new, the new world, the new, the new map or something from our Pentagon. That scares the hell out of me, by the way. And about globalization and building a global infrastructure where everybody can have the same freedoms and rights and opportunities that we do in America. Well, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you're misguided here. I don't care what paint they put on this thing for you. Globalization, in in its current form, and the way that it's being practiced, is not a way for every other nation to get the rights and freedoms that are inherent to America, and the opportunity that we have in America. It's a great way for America to lose those rights and freedoms as we try to fit in as a good global citizen that does what everybody else does. I don't want to do what everybody else does. I want my nation to stay the way that it is. See, and that's where I'll use force. You come here and try to impose your will on us, we will beat your head down to your feet. And whatever's left, you will send home in a bag. Right? So don't think the libertarians are all pacifists. But I am pacifist at the point of, if you're not interfering with my life, and you're not interfering with the life of my fellow countrymen, I will stay out of your business to the best of my ability. That doesn't even mean I don't support the wars that we're doing right now in Iraq and Afghanistan. I have some very big misgivings about Afghanistan right now and the way that it's being handled. I never said we should have never went to Afghanistan and we should not be involved in this. No. What I said is, if we're going to fight a freaking war, then it better be worth killing people. And it better be worth losing our own. And if it's worth killing people and losing our own, you kill as many of them as fast as you can, as hard as you can, until they quit, and they're demoralized, and they give up, and they put up their hands, and they say, I quit. I don't want any more of us to die. We surrender. You win. What do you want? That's how you fight a war. That's a horrific thing. So you better only do it when it's absolutely necessary. Now, we're already there. And what I say now is either unleash hell, Absolutely unleash it. Throw in 
250,000 more troops. It's going to cost a god-awful fortune. I don't know if you people know this, but right now it costs us about $800,000 a human to have people in Afghanistan. One soldier costs $800,000 a year to keep in Afghanistan. If it ain't worth the money and it ain't worth killing the enemy in god-awful numbers, get out. One or the other. In or out. Now, this whole concept, though, that the, this email from Kelly came up, well, if we just went out there and put on this infrastructure and the new, it's called the new map. Oh, my God. That, Kelly, you really better think about this. Okay? The new map. I don't want a new map. I like the old map. The one that says United States of America on it, not, you know, the North, the North American Union. And that's what we're headed for. And that's not conspiracy talk. That's the agenda of the new map. is a North American Union, a South American Union, a European Union, an African Union, and a, and a Pacific Asia Union. That's what they want. And it's not nefarious. It's not underground. They think it's a good idea. They think it'll be great. We'll just all get along. We're, we're people of Earth. We should be a global society. You know what? When everybody else is willing to live in liberty, I'll talk about a global society. But right now, we don't have liberty. This is the last bastion of liberty. And little nations here and there are starting to get it, and they're starting to get on the bandwagon of creating liberty in their own nation with with smaller government, less taxes, allowing people to self-govern. And most of those countries are countries like Georgia who were part of the former Soviet Union, that have lived under the complete and total oppression, and it's still fresh in their mind, and they still remember it. Poland is moving more toward liberty today than the United States is, because they lived under the communist bloc. They lived behind the Iron Curtain. They understood it. And that's the problem, is that no one understands what really was meant by the founders when they said, we are supposed to live is is a nation that shows what all human beings should be treated like. That doesn't mean that we go over and force it on somebody else. If you want people, and I've said, you want consistency in my message, i said if you want people to live a more prepared lifestyle, love liberty, provide for themselves, resist government growth, then you don't go out and you tell people, you need to do this. You live that way. And you live that way open, honest, and visually to the people around you. Be an example of what you're, you're trying to get people to do. Show them how good that life is. Be a shining light. Be the shining city on the hill. Right in the middle of those plains in Colorado or that little urban homestead up in the northeast or someplace out near the swamplands in, in Florida or way the hell out in California looking at, you know, the god-awful mess of Los Angeles in your little little place that you've created for yourself. Create that place. Be that example. And then people will be attracted to you. I've never said to spread that what we do by anything that could be seen as force. Simply letting people know that it's available, it's around them, and making them aware of it. And demonstrating to them the way that it works by living that way. Not by talking about it, but by living that way. That's how this country is supposed to expand upon the concept that the Constitution applies to humans, not just Americans. Not by going in and taking our Constitution and shoving it up the ass of people that don't want it. By sitting here and living to those ideals and staying staying true to those ideals and not throwing our Constitution away. Not calling it a damn piece of paper when it doesn't fit with what we want. Not pushing it out of the way every time it becomes inconvenient and it makes a difficult decision hard. No, by living by the Constitution, the way that it was written, and the way that it is supposed to be interpreted, which is the way that any 8th grader would be able to interpret it that understood good English. We don't need a Supreme Court to truly interpret the Constitution. That's not their job. Their job is to go, the Constitution's easy. Has the legislator... Has the legislature gone outside of its boundaries? Yes, strike it down. The end. That's their real job. It was never uh, thought when the system was put in place that the, the, the court would look at things and go, well, how are we going to interpret the Constitution this time? The founders wrote it in pretty freaking black and white, easy to understand English. Anybody can understand what it means. The people means the people everywhere. Not everywhere except this one place. Right? The comma doesn't change the meaning of the sentence. Let's understand English and let's interpret it. That's how it was put out there. But my stance of let's not be in over 100 nations with a military presence, I believe it's over 150, let's not outspend the entire rest of the world combined on military spending. And I don't think people don't realize that either. We spend more money on the military. 
than the entire rest of the world put together. That's totally consistent with my message of living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Because the way you get more people to do it is by being the example. Now, how can we be an example as America to the rest of the world when we're sticking our nose into everybody else's affairs? And we say, you should have liberty. Smack. And if you don't take liberty, smack. We're going to give you liberty. Smack. And that's what we do with our military. And that's not against the guys in the military. You guys are my brothers. They support you 100%. But you're like a gun. And depending on who's at the top, that's who's holding that gun, that's who points that gun, and that's who aims that gun. And just like the bullet, you're very, very efficient. And if you're sent somewhere to do something, you're going to do it, and you're going to do it the way you're told. Well, then we better be damn sure that the guy holding the gun is worthy of holding that gun. Because he's not using the gun to defend his home. He's using the gun to impart U.S. policy on the rest of the world. So... The anti-war stance that some people seem to have a problem with because they think it's anti-military or that it turns a blind eye to the risks and the dangers that are out there and the evil people that are out there, that's not what it's about. It's about we have a constitutional way to declare war. You know, Ron Paul didn't say don't go to Afghanistan. Everybody thinks he did. You know what he said? We're going to send our men off to war? Okay, fine. We have a constitution. We have a way that war is declared. Let's declare war. Let's declare war on a nation. If we're going to go to war with that nation, let's set the objectives of what that war are now. Let's have Congress issue that declaration, and then let's go to war under the international rules of war. Does that sound anti-war? That's not anti-war. Right? That's anti-force. In other words, we only use force when it's absolutely required. So make the case to the Congress that it's required, what the outcome is supposed to be, and how we're going to make that outcome happen. Give us that, we'll support you. That's what it's really all about, folks. And why do I take something that's so political like this and bring it up at the end of a show? Because I want you to understand it applies to your daily life, not just how you view those politicians up there. Because it's exactly what I said. If you want more people to be prepared for disaster, if you want more people to live sustainably, all you people that believe in global warming and, oh, my God, put the compact for us and bulb in your own damn house and shut up. Put the solar panel on your own roof and shut up. Drive a fuel-efficient vehicle, by the way, like I do, and shut up. Quit running your mouth and trying to push your views and your thoughts on other people. Quit trying to use force, even if it's with words. Take action. Live the life that you propose that everybody else should live. That's why nobody respects politicians and, and, and celebrities on this crap. Because they eat giant cheeseburgers, grow fat, sit in the middle of a house that uses more electricity than ten regular American homes, and they're messaging, and they say, I bought carbon offsets from my own company. Come on. That's not the way you make things happen. You want things to happen, no matter what those things are. The way you do it is not through the use of force, but through action in your own world, in the areas that you control. And by being an example, if we want to spread the message that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence apply to humans and apply to everywhere else in the world, the best thing we can do is get out of their affairs and show them what it's like to live under a society of liberty. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent